what's the difference between having something that as a hobby and having something as a passion for you? Having something uh, that you just do because it's convenience or maybe it's a little fun versus having something that you truly and deeply care about. What would be the difference between that? Well, usually you'd pursue a hobby as long as it doesn't cost too much, it doesn't take up too, mu too much time, as long as your spouse doesn't tell you to stop doing it because they want to actually see you. Uh, it's something that, that maybe you'll give up a hobby when something better comes along. When I was a kid, uh, I don't know why this started to happen, but every birthday I used to get model cars. I've never built a model car, but I used to have boxes of them under my car. It was something I never really got into, but somewhere along the way, someone thought it was a hobby of mine, but I wasn't that interested. I liked Lego. Maybe that was the, the transition, and model cars were cheaper than Lego. I don't know. They were, they were trying to change over my, uh, what interested me. But uh, when you have something that, you're, that you have as a hobby that you enjoy, you do, versus having something you're passionate about, when the, the passionate thing comes along, the thing that you actually are passionate, you're devoted to, You'll choose that every time over the hobby. And when I was in, uh, when I was in high school, I loved playing sports. Uh, I rode my bike everywhere. I played all these sports. I really enjoyed it. And uh, during one year, I played, uh, I played rugby in grade uh, 10. And then the next year, I didn't play because I was playing the sport called canoe polo. Uh, and Google it later when you get home. But just the quick thing, it's... Uh, water polo in a kayak and there's hitting and pushing and semi-drowning it's pretty awesome so google it you won't be disappointed look it up it's great I used to play that sport uh, and canoe polo I really loved but in grade uh, in grade 11 or grade 10 I played rugby and canoe polo and uh, in one of the final rugby games of the seasons I bruised a whole bunch of ribs and uh, if you've ever watched some kayaking you kind of need your abs and your core and I couldn't breathe really well, and I definitely couldn't kayak for a few weeks. And in grade 11, I had a big uh, canoe polo trip. We were going to Japan. It was very expensive, saving up a lot of money. And so the next year, I was, I was left with a decision. Do I play rugby and canoe polo and risk not getting to go on this trip and not getting to play, or do I not play rugby? And so obviously, I was more passionate. I was more invested in canoe polo. I didn't play rugby, even though I enjoyed it, even though I liked it. And so when we have something that we're passionate about, that we're devoted to, if something else comes along, we'll sacrifice that because what's more important is where our passions lie and where our devotion lies. And so our highest value always goes towards what we're actually devoted to. And so we can say that we like something, that we're devoted to something, that we're passionate about something as much as we want but when our choices, when our, where our money goes, where our time goes, where our energy goes, actually shows where our highest values and where our passion and our devotion truly lies. And so this morning we're talking about, as it even says on the screen behind me, devotion to Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at three distinct passages today uh, as we're going through the life of Jesus in the book of Mark. And we've been bouncing around. Today we'll be in chapter 14. And we're getting closer and closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, today we're looking at two different meals that Jesus has with his disciples. And then uh, we're going to be responding at the very end with communion because we're actually teaching about Jesus and his first time teaching his disciples about communion.
And so we're going to start in uh, Mark 14, 1 to 9. I'll be reading out of the NIV, which conveniently will be on the screens behind me. But I'd love you to uh, flip to your hard copy or your iBible and track along in your preferred translation. It starts in verse 1. It says, Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So our setting of our first scene here, it says that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is coming right away. And for those of us who aren't, uh, aren't Hebrew Jewish people that haven't grown up celebrating the Passover, or maybe aren't super familiar with the Old Testament, the Passover was a celebration of God's miraculous rescuing of his chosen people from slavery in Egypt. And on that night, it was the tenth and final and worst plague. There were nine plagues up to this that each specifically were addressed to a different small g god that the uh, Egyptians worshipped. And this final one was an act of ultimate judgment on Egypt because Moses... uh, he was uh, the leader that was called to, to warn the Pharaoh of God's pending judgment and salvation of his people, and he refused to listen. And uh, the judgment was that a firstborn was killed out of every single family, of animals, all of the livestock, and all of the people. And this was done because the Pharaoh had killed all of the, had tried to kill and had killed many, many sons of God's people. And so he had murdered, and in the same way, God had judged them. But God's, uh, God's mercy on his people literally passed over the Israelite people. It passed over the Jewish people, so that if they followed, if they followed God, then they would put blood on the lintels and the doorposts, and the angel of death would pass over their house, so that they wouldn't lose somebody. And the Passover at this time in Jesus' life had been a time when people believed that the Messiah was coming during the Passover feast. So the Passover was a time of hope. So it was a celebration of what God had done already and what he was going to do in the future. He had saved them from slavery in Egypt. And it was an important time because Israel gathered in Jerusalem. They gathered in what they thought was the holy city, the holy of holy city. And so they celebrated this festival in this ritualistic way. During the Passover, they would sacrifice a lamb or a goat that was spotless without blemish, and then they would eat it together with prescribed meal that they would follow. And so they would remember that God had saved them miraculously out of slavery. 
But they had great hopes and dreams that the Messiah, the Savior, the Redeemer would come on the night of the Passover, which was two days away. But while the crowds of people are hoping and dreaming, the, the, the religious leaders are scheming. They're getting together and thinking, how can we kill Jesus? He's becoming a real problem. He's, he's uh, had the people that are coming around him and, and think that he is coming. They think that he, has, uh, that, that he might be the Messiah. He might be the King of Israel. And so they said, how can we kill him? But they said, well, we're not going to do it during the festival because the people may riot. They were scared of what the people would say. And so they waited in fear for the crowds, but they didn't know what God knew about the timing that was coming. But we'll get there. So Jesus is sitting here sharing a meal with the people he often hung out with, what would be the least of these. And so he's in the house of one called Simon the leper. How would you love that as a title over your house? You know, just like you put that, usually you put like whatever the MacArthur's or whatever on your house, but instead he goes, Simon the leper, this is my house. Well, lepers, lepers weren't actually allowed to be around people. But Jesus always went to the least of those. He broke some of those societal rules and norms. And he was with the people that were the least of these. And as he's sharing this meal, this unnamed woman comes and breaks this bottle of expensive perfume. It says a pure nard. And uh, spends what is amounts to, they say it's about a year's wages. Uh, they say it's uh, 300 denarii. But uh, in today's terms, since we don't use those, uh, those currency anymore, it's about $50,000 is the average salary in Canada. So she spends this one bottle of perfume. I don't know where she bought it from, but that's expensive perfume, wherever you are. $50,000, she breaks the bottle and pours it on Jesus' head as anointing. Now, anointing is something that was done quite commonly during festivals. Uh, so it was something that was, that was done. It was usually done with oil, though. It wasn't usually done with $50,000 worth of perfume. But she anoints his head with this, this perfume. And you see that the, the people there, the religious leaders there, start uh, becoming indignant. They're literally muttering about it and saying, what a waste of money. They think it's a waste of money that could be given to the poor. And uh, this raises the question, how much is too much devotion to Jesus? Is this wasteful? They, they asked this question, this $50,000 of perfume. They said, well, they could have sold it. Couldn't she have bought like a $500 bottle of perfume and then given the rest, the $49,500 to the poor? What a waste. And is that, is that something we ask? So how much is too much devotion to Jesus? How much is too much? But to give perspective to their complaints before we start thinking, well, yeah, we agree with them. They're wasteful. In, their, in the, the Jewish line of thinking in this day, there were different acts that actually gave you more approval from God. And so uh, giving money to the poor was actually something that bought favor with God. And now this is something that, uh, that came out uh, during church history with the, the uh, Catholic Church in Europe. And it was this buying of favor. And it came out in all of these different ways. But it's this idea that I exchange something when I give God. He has to give me something back. So I'm giving God, I'm giving the poor money. God's going to approve me for that. And so they're saying, what a waste of money. We could have gotten approval for that, is essentially what they're saying. So even though it seems like they're being caring and they love the poor, they're actually doing it for themselves. 
And so before we, we start thinking about that, that's, that's one thing to do for themselves. It's this false righteousness. And then also it says that they rebuke this woman harshly. They start really attacking her. They start really calling down on her. But Jesus steps in and defends her, and I love that part. He says, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing. And then he says this really strange thing. She's prepared me for my burial. She's prepared me for death. Now, of the things that brought, uh, that brought uh, devotion, interestingly enough, giving to the poor gave you a bit of favor. Preparing the dead for burial got you even more. Now, I don't think that this woman did that with that intent. But her act of devotion to Jesus as he was alive, not knowing that he was dead, actually showed her how much she cared for her. And in the same way, actually helped her curry favor with God. Not because of her act, but because of her love. And because of her sacrifice. And so Jesus stands in and says, uh, this woman's devotion is a beautiful thing. Now, there's a contrast here, and, and Mark often has these. And it's this contrast between this unnamed woman who shows this radical devotion to Jesus and then these religious leaders that just want their own righteousness. They just want to curry favor with God. And now, if you notice something, what these leaders are doing, it's really easy to pick out what someone else should be doing for God rather than what they should be doing for God. So we're saying, why didn't she give that money to the poor? Do they give to the poor? Maybe. Do they give a year's wages to the poor? Probably not. And so instead of judging what other people do in their devotion, instead we should ask, what are we doing to show Jesus our love? If we say we love Jesus and we love other people, what are we actually doing? Are we giving just a little or are we like this woman and extravagant in our devotion to the point where other people say, what a waste. And so continuing the story now in Mark 14, 10 to 15 in the narrative, it says this. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So we watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread which is the Passover, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So once again, contrasting this, this woman with her extravagant devotion to Jesus, this unnamed woman, we don't know who he, she is, we don't know her history, Mark gives us none of that, is one of Jesus' closest disciples, Judas Iscariot, who instead of showing Jesus' devotion, is actually betraying him to the religious leaders at the time of the Passover. And so he promises to hand over Jesus to the religious leaders in exchange for money. And at the same time, there's two of his disciples who Jesus has prophetically told them what is to happen and where he can go to prepare the Passover. And this is an interesting side note, but people, uh, people who lived in Jerusalem were obligated to provide room for those who were outside of Jerusalem for them to eat the Passover. 
So if they had room, they had to give it to them. And it being a large upper room, it was probably like a storage area. It was probably something that he wouldn't have been uh, where his family was going to eat the Passover. But he had to do this. But Jesus knew just the right place. And he sent his disciples, gave them the steps along the way, what was going to happen. And in the same way that he prophetically knew where the Passover was going to happen, where they were going to celebrate, he knew that his betrayal was coming soon. And now moving on to Mark 14, 16 to 21, it says, The disciples left, that's these two, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. It would have been better for him not to have been born. So once again, Jesus, this is another meal in this story. He's eating a meal with his disciples. And this is a special meal. This is a Passover meal. This was a a ceremony that they would do every year together. And it's a time of fellowship, of sharing life, and of literally a breaking bread. But there's two major twists in this story. The first is that Jesus is betrayed by one of his closest friends. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Have you ever had someone that you're close to that they just totally betrayed you? That you cared about them, you loved them, you trusted them, and they just totally broke that. That there, is, there are fewer things in life that hurt than that. that. That wound that happens out of that is so sad, is so hard. And now Jesus, Jesus was prophetic. So, uh, so he knew, and he probably even knew when he picked Judas as the original 12 disciples, that he would betray him. Now, if you know that someone's going to betray you, how, how hard is it to love that person? How hard is it to walk alongside them, to trust them, to love them? And Jesus spent time with him. Jesus would have known him. But uh, Jesus knows if you have experienced that kind of hurt, that kind of heartache, Jesus knows what you feel. Jesus knows the pain of that. Now, in Jewish society... And just as in many ancient societies, and still even some today, sharing bread together, sharing a meal together, is actually a sign of very close fellowship, of brotherhood, of trust, and forgiveness. And it, with sharing bread comes this bond that you cannot break, that you are not supposed to break. It's this, you're honor-bound to be together and to share and to have trust. But Jesus... Uh, betrayer didn't just share bread with him once but many 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 times and so Jesus is declaring woe on Judas and that it would be better for him not to have been born now Mark uh, Mark and I I thought this when I've read this before but he says the one who dips the bread in the bowl with me I always thought it was maybe like the other gospel accounts where it's like at that moment Judas is also dipping bread in the same bowl but it's actually not like that It's actually they have all dipped the bread in the bowl. And so they don't know which one of them it is except Judas. Judas is the only one who knows. 
But even he was one of those ones that says, what, is it me? It couldn't be me. So he's, he's playing along with the rest of the disciples, feigning his ignorance. But Jesus warns, it would have been better for you never to have been born than to do this. Now, many people try to speculate and question and try and get to the root motive of Judas. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Some people have said, well, he was the, uh, he was the treasurer, and, so he, and he was always skimming off the top. I think it says that in Matthew. And so he uh, was the one who was in charge of the money. And so he saw that Jesus was warning he was going to die soon. So he was trying to cut and run and get the last bit of money maybe. Or uh, maybe, it was, uh, maybe it was that he was just scared of the persecution that was coming. So he wanted to cut and run and make a deal with the, the leaders. But uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was pride. Maybe he thought he was better than the other disciples uh, maybe it was just hate. Like, what, what was it? We try and figure it out. We want to pinpoint it so that we can avoid it. We want to be able to say, well, he did it because of this, and I would never do that. But Mark actually intentionally leaves it very vague. Mark gives us no clue and no indication, and even the disciples are left questioning, which one of us is it? And the reason is because every disciple is potentially another Judas. So we're left to wonder for ourselves, is our heart truly devoted to Jesus? Or is it possible that I would be one of those on a slippery slope to betraying Jesus? And that's a hard question, but it's something each one of us should ask. Am I truly devoted to following Jesus? Now, devotional to Jesus is not optional. It's a requirement. It's not something that takes part of our hearts. That, well, it's, it's, I'll follow Jesus with part of my heart. I'll, I love him, but, but I love so many other things too. But it takes all of our hearts. So what does devotion to Jesus look like? It looks like him having the highest priority in your life. It means if anything would come along to try and distract or detract or to take away from your relationship with Jesus, that it's not even a question. That thing's gone. Whatever it is in your life that would take your time, energy away from following Jesus, it's set aside. Having Jesus as a hobby and just something that you do, just trying to tack on to your life, well, I'll add religion on just as a just-in-case thing. I'll, just, I'll follow Jesus, I'll go to church on Sundays, I'll read a verse a day, I'll do whatever, but I don't let it actually take up my whole time, my whole schedule. I'm too busy for that. That's, that's not what devotion to Jesus looks like. Having Jesus as a hobby ends as soon as it's no longer convenient. Having Jesus as a hobby, it's in, uh, in North America, we can go to church. And yeah, maybe people will roll their eyes at us. But as it stands right now, we're not going to die for going to church. But in other countries where there's actual persecution, where there's actually people that die for their faith, people don't follow Jesus just as a hobby. They don't go to church just because it's what they've always done. They don't go to church just because their friends are there, their, their family goes there. They only go to church. They only come gather as the church on Sundays because Jesus is their highest priority. They would say, I would rather die going to church than to slack in my devotion to Jesus. And it's not just about going to church, even though that's the example I'm using. It's about actually having your heart and your passion following after Jesus. So the difference between hobby and devotion means this, that a hobby you'll give, but I won't give too much. If you, but devotion actually means you're willing to give anything. If Jesus asks, well, I want you to, to sell your car and give it away to missions. I want you to do this. If that's what he's calling you to do, then you wouldn't 
you'd say, okay, I'll do that. I'll ride the bike. I'll get a moped. I'll do whatever. Or uh, our time. Well, if it's a hobby, you say, well, I'm willing to put in a little bit. But, uh, but maybe I'll read a verse a day or go to Sunday services when it's convenient. But if there's a hockey game or if the weather's nice outside, I'd rather be golfing. Or uh, I'm willing to read a verse a day, but don't ask me to actually read a whole chapter of the Bible. That's, that's too much. Or I'm willing to pray when I need something. But that whole thing that, that, that the Bible talks about praying without ceasing, I'm not even willing to try exploring what that might look like. Or uh, hobby of Jesus is asking, what can I get from Jesus? Versus asking what devotion would, what can I give to Jesus? And so the, the first twist is that, uh, that Jesus says he's going to be betrayed. And he's not going to be betrayed by somebody else that's far away or peripheral. He's betrayed by one of his closest followers, his closest friends. And the second is that Jesus transforms this Passover meal into something totally new. And so in verse uh, chapter 14, 22 to 25, it says this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, take it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the kingdom of God. Now there are aspects of this that were usual to them, and then some that were completely unusual to them. Breaking of bread in Jewish culture was actually done by the head of the family, by the, the patriarch, by the leader of the family. And it would be a loaf of bread, and he would literally bless it. He'd pray a prayer uh, to, to God of the Bible, to the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They would pray a blessing, and then he would literally break it and start breaking it into smaller chunks and hand it out. And the thought behind this was when he blessed the food, when he prayed a blessing over the food, that blessing would be passed on to every person who received it. So they were blessed by the breaking and the passing around of the bread. And so that was something that was normal. And they, when they received that, they would receive the blessing that was on that. It would, they would receive a benefit from that bread. From that bread. And so they, uh, they would receive from that. And now Jesus takes this and takes it one step way further. He actually says, this is my body. This bread is my body that is broken for you. Take and eat this in remembrance of what I do. And now Jesus hasn't done it yet, but his body would be broken. He would be killed. He would be hung up on a cross on the hill of Calvary. And he would broken and so he's saying take and eat this be a part of this now people aren't a part of the curse of the breaking part they're a part of the blessing that is gained from that breaking and so the blessing is the exchange of life for jesus death it's the exchange of hope for their sorrow of joy for their pain of blessing for the curse and for help for their devotion to him that's the exchange that Jesus gives. He gives them a blessing by breaking his body for them. And now, the second part, 
is drinking from a cup. And even from the very beginning, this was unusual because they drank from the same cup. And in Jewish culture, they would have drank from separate cups. And so the, the, from the very beginning, having the same cup together would have been uncomfortable for them. They would have went, this is a little weird. I don't want to touch where Peter's lips have touched. That's a little weird. And actually at our, uh, at Kersenai's wedding, we had, I, I should have, I didn't plan on saying this, so I didn't remember what it was called, but my uncle, uh, who thought he was Scottish at the time, he's not, but he lived there, and so he thought he was Scottish. He, uh, he, he had this Scottish thing that he wanted to do, and there was this sterling silver cup that he poured, uh, let's call it juice, in. And uh, it was whiskey juice. Um, and uh, passed it around, and everyone there was supposed to drink from it, and it was this, this blessing thing. And my brother-in-law was the smartest because he drank from where the handle was. No one else had done, but everyone else kind of wiped it. But it was this, this blessing passed around thing. It was kind of this cool Scottish thing. But in the same way people were weirded out by that, the disciples would have been weirded out by passing around this wine cup and, and taking part of drinking it together. But, uh, but the thing that would have made it even worse and even more uncomfortable is by Jesus saying that it was the blood of the covenant and it was his blood that they were drinking. Now, blood has significance for all of us. Uh, if you're alive here this morning, and it looks like, for the most part, people's eyes are, are here with me, so I don't think anyone isn't, but you have blood pumping through your veins right now. And it's your lifeblood. It's what passes around oxygen and nutrients throughout your body. And uh, has anyone heard those commercials from uh, Canada, Canadian Blood Services? And uh, I think they changed their slogan now, but the old one was, blood, it's in you to give. And I would always respond by, no, it's in me to live, not to give. And yes, I, I would donate blood, but I just always, I always had to tease them about that. I'm like, blood, I need my blood to live. So I, if I gave it all, I would no longer be living. So. But anyways, it's not in you to give, it's in you to live. But, so blood is life. And Jesus, uh, when we talk about Jesus' blood, and it's something that we do, if you look in the hymn book, you flip through, you could do a quick search of how many are about blood. We sing songs about it. And now, for those of us who have been around church for, for at least a little while, we, we start to understand it. But can you imagine walking off the street, never been in church, never heard a song, and you hear all these people saying, I'm washed in the blood, I'm washed in the blood. It's, uh, it's a little weird. I'll just say that right now. Because they would think, well, I thought this was a church. Are they vampires? Is this a horror movie? What is going on here? And as, as weird as you can imagine that would be, these Jewish men that were celebrating this Passover meal with Jesus, it was way weirder and way odder for them. What, what he was talking about was almost blasphemous, and it was very repulsive. And to even, we don't have the, the context of this because we, most of us here probably aren't Jewish or Hebrew and growing up, but one of the earliest commandments in the Bible is one forgive, forbidding people from eating food that has blood in it. And it comes from Genesis 9-4, it says... But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And the, the passage uh, surrounding this and the context behind it is that it talks about the, the meat itself, the blood that's in it. That's its lifeblood and it's, and it's not okay to drink that blood. It's not okay to eat that blood. And uh, Jewish people still follow this today by not eating meat that has blood in it. And this is uh, along with some of the other things. It's called kosher. 
It's, it's what it's okay to eat and what it's not okay to eat. And for them, this was something that was ingrained in them that they would never even think of crossing. And like the, ble- the bread, Jesus took this Passover wine and transformed it into something new. It's this new covenant where Jesus offers his sacrifice, his body and his blood to cover the sins of many. Now, blood was something that they were used to. Blood did surround the covenants because death surrounded the covenants. The cost of sin is death. And right from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned against, uh, against God by choosing to rebel against him, in the rebellion, the original sin... They uncovered and they realized that they had shame all of a sudden, that they were naked. And so God had to literally cover them with the skins of animals. And so if you want to see the first sacrifice of animals for human sins in the Bible, it's in Genesis. It's right there where God killed animals in order to create a covering for their sin. To cover their shame. To cover them. And so in the same way, ever since, sin was covered by the cost of animals' death and blood. And in the same way, Jesus, as the one-time sacrifice for all, or what he says, for many, is to be a covering once and for all, his blood to cover the sin and the shame of humanity. And so this pattern had continued ever since the Garden of Eden. And it was by animals that were, that were killed, and then their blood was sprinkled on a sacrifice. And so the woman who breaks the bottle to pour out the expensive perfume to show her sacrifice and her devotion to Jesus is the same way that Jesus' blood, which is an inestimable value. How can you say how much the God of the Bible, Jesus, God in human flesh, how much his blood is worth? That woman had a year's worth of uh, perfume that she broke to cover and anoint Jesus. Jesus had blood that was of infinite worth. That he broke his body in order to cover humanity. In order to cover those who say they have put their faith, hope, and trust in him. Just as this woman anointed Jesus for death, Jesus anointed us by his death. And so Jesus alone, his sacrifice is worthy. His sacrifice is the one time for all. And so Jesus cares so much of us. And the good news of the gospel, we talk about the gospel. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It starts with the bad news. It starts with the news that we couldn't earn it. We couldn't buy it. We were sinful and we had no hope. But the hope that we have of coming to faith, to come in relationship with Jesus, comes through Jesus alone. And he says, you don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be worthy. I'm worthy. I'm good enough. And so it starts with the realization that like Judas, all of us have betrayed Jesus by lack of devotion to him, by disobeying him. And so by choosing to live for ourselves and to live willfully, Jesus died for us when we were still his enemies so that we could, by his sacrifice, come back from death to life, from punishment to victory, from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. That's the great exchange that Jesus promises. And have you experienced this great exchange? Have you experienced what it means to give up your sinful life, to give up your sinful self in order to follow Jesus joyfully? 
And then if you have, are you devoted to Jesus? Have you, have you actually followed him and have you actually given him your whole life? Or have you drifted away? So are you following Jesus just out of habit or as a hobby? Or perhaps a just-in-case? Just as a Monopoly has a just-in-get-out-of-jail-free uh, card, are you following Jesus just enough to get a get-out-of-hell-free card? Are you just trying to put in just that little bit? And so this morning, whether you've, whether you've been following Jesus faithfully for many, many years, whether you're just stumblingly trying to follow after him, whether maybe you've drifted away and realized that your, your heart isn't devoted to him, or maybe uh, you, you haven't ever put your faith, hope, or trust in him, today is an opportunity to say that I want to follow Jesus. And one of the best, most beautiful ways of doing this is celebrating communion together. And so we're going to act on this morning's message by, by celebrating communion together. And as the, the Church of the Nazarene, we celebrate open communion, which means it's open to anyone who has put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. Whatever your background of faith, whatever, uh, whatever stream of Christianity you grew up in or are exposed to, or if you've had none whatsoever, if you have faith in Jesus, then communion is for you. So three practical ways for us to act on it this morning is to, one, confess Confession is a great way to start uh, the process of even just praying to Jesus. Is there anything that's holding me back from you? Is there any sins in my life? Is there any areas of pride or rebellion or betrayal of you, Jesus? Is there anything in my life? And confess, and he is quick to forgive. And then the second is to thank. Thank Jesus for his forgiveness and for his love for you. Because he does love you. And when you ask for him to forgive you, he will. And the third is to partake. So if you have faith in Jesus, please join us in taking communion. And now as I pray, the worship team will come up and the, the ushers will begin passing out the elements. And then, uh, and then I'll lead us in taking them together once everyone who is, is willing has received them. So would you please join me in prayer? Holy God, we gather at this table with you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ who by your spirit was anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release and freedom for the captives, to set at liberty those who have been oppressed. Jesus, you healed the sick, you fed the hungry, you ate with sinners, and you established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of your coming again. And on the night in which you were betrayed, Jesus, you took bread, you gave thanks, You broke it, and then you gave it to your disciples. And you said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, you took the cup, you gave thanks, gave it to your disciples, and you said, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Through our Lord Jesus, our Christ, we pray this. Amen.